Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast. In our podcast, we discuss the new view of safety, what works and what doesn't work, to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Pam, and we appreciate you listening. Please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast. You can find us on most podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Your workers are drunk. Well, I don't mean they're drinking on the job, or at least I hope not, but if you have shift work, long work hours, or changing shifts, your workers are making errors at the same rate as if they were drunk. So we're going to talk about fatigue today and how that affects error rate. But before we do that, just wanted to give you a little personal update of what's going on with ProSafe. And Mike has been busy working on music and recording. and. And Mike has just released a new song called In the Middle. So get a chance to, if you get a chance to check it out, please do. It's got some implications to what we're going on today with the COVID situation. And speaking of COVID-19, we are still working from home. And I have to tell you that I am really enjoying not having that commute to Atlanta or other parts of the Southeast. And it gives you time back, time out of your life. And it's going to be hard to consider going back to the norm of sitting for hours in in traffic out there. And because of that, we've both had, again, more personal time to do the things that kind of restore us. Mike spending his time with music. I have been doing uh, gardening. Of course, it's gardening season, and my garden is thriving, and I'm really enjoying that. Plus, I'm still obsessed with wood carving, and I'm trying to venture out from doing just wood spirits into some other carving projects, but I'm really enjoying that. And again, it's very restorative. So back to our subject of your workers being drunk. You know, and that kind of uh, brings some things to mind, too. You know, the use of alcohol has uh, become not cool in uh, my construction world compared to what it was when I started. I clearly remember, and I know some of you listening to this podcast will remember the days of the top-out party, that every time you finished a multi-story building, you... Um, flew a Christmas tree from the top of the tower crane, and there was an enormous keg party with alcohol. Some of the younger folks probably find this hard to believe, but that was the culture at the time, and there was an acceptance of use of alcohol that thankfully has changed and had a very positive impact on safety. I also remember how we used to work about a half day on uh, Christmas Eve and around noontime, uh, General Superintendent would come by and tell me, listen, get out there in the field and uh, if you detect that some folks are breaking out the alcohol, let me know and we'll go ahead and shut her down early. Yes, culture has changed. And as our culture of acceptance of alcohol uh, has changed, 
I'm hoping that our acceptance of extreme fatigue will also change. So back to fatigue, fatigue is a well-known error precursor. Just as a reminder, error precursors are unfavorable conditions that increase the likelihood of error. There are a lot of error precursors, and we have a podcast devoted to that topic, but today I want to just focus on the effects of fatigue in safety performance and human error. should be noted that fatigue doesn't just affect safety, it affects production and quality performance as well as safety. And I wonder if we really take that into account when we are under a time crunch, recognizing that we might be working a lot longer hours, but we're not necessarily getting more work done or getting quality work done. But we certainly have higher error rates that dramatically affect safety and production and quality. Fatigue can result from not enough hours of sleep or from being awake at times when people are normally asleep. For example, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. is a critical window for most people. I remember working one project that uh, had me working, you know, at 2 a.m. and how there just was not enough coffee on the planet at 2 a.m. to have you alert and able to make good decisions. I had a discussion with a general superintendent for a large construction company last year about tower crane operators and fatigue. The project was running really long hours with crane operators often in the seat for 16 or more hours. I mentioned this was a significant source of potential errors that could lead to catastrophic accidents. Superintendent didn't see that as a problem. He said that, well, you know, they get used to it. So I asked him if he would be okay with them operating the tower cranes while drunk. He said, well, of course not. Ah, I said, but you're okay with them operating at an error rate that is similar to being legally drunk. He chose not to believe me. But we have accepted long hours as the norm, and we no longer recognize the exposure. Studies have shown us that after 17 to 19 hours without sleep, performance on some tests was equivalent or worse than at a blood alcohol level of 0.05%. Response speeds were up to 50% slower for some tests and accuracy measures were significantly poorer at this level of alcohol. After longer periods without sleep, performance reached levels equivalent to a blood alcohol level of 0.1%. Let's take an average worker in an urban setting who commutes for an hour or more to work and back home. Some of our folks are commuting longer than that. They must get up by 5 a.m. or earlier to be on the job at, at, say, 7 a.m. If they work a 12-hour day, they've been awake for 14 hours. If they work for 16 hours, they've been awake for 18 hours. That is truly dangerous. Night shifts are worse. People are forced to be awake when normal circadian rhythms would cause them to be sleepy. If they need to care for their children or just see their children, they must be awake by 3 p.m. If work starts at 11 p.m., they will have been awake for eight hours before they start to work. An eight-hour work shift puts them in the danger zone towards the end of the shift, in addition to the problem of normal sleep rhythms being out of whack. Just for comparison, in Georgia, 0.08 is the legal limit for adults over 21 years of age driving non-commercial vehicles. A CMV operator is held to a stricter standard of 0.4%. Years ago, I was working in a construction project that required a second shift to work from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. 
But leadership had to do shift turnovers, requiring us to be to work by 5 a.m. at the latest. We then need to stay over until 6 a.m. to turn over again. Added to that was the fact that I had a child in grade school that I needed to spend time with before I left the house. What I remember most about that time was a general feeling of sickness. I was also very irritable, as were our co-workers. Meals were interesting. What do you eat at 6 a.m. after being up for 16, 18 hours? A number of my co-workers subscribed to a breakfast of beer and pancakes. I could never bring myself to try that remedy, but it was hard to figure out what to eat and when, and that helped lead to that just general feeling of sickness and, and not being well. A new study from Virginia Tech Transportation reveals that 20% of car crashes are caused by fatigue, with young drivers particularly vulnerable to driving while fatigued. While OSHA has no regulatory limits to address fatigue, they do state that accident and injury rates are 18% higher during evening shifts and 30% greater during night shifts when compared to day shifts. They further state that working 12 hours per day is associated with a 37% increase risk of injury. We also know that worker fatigue is a factor in many of our industrial disasters, such as the 2005 Texas City BP oil refinery explosion, the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger, and the nuclear accidents at Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. In the Texas City explosion, a night shift employee who was involved in the accident, had worked 12-hour shifts for 33 consecutive days. Two managers, who were supposed to be overseeing the events, had worked 37 and 31 days, respectively. Investigators stated that evidence suggested that the operator's fatigue degraded their judgment and their problem-solving skills. This hindered their ability to determine that the tower was overfilling at the time of the accident. With facts like these, why wouldn't a company want to develop a fatigue management plan? We recently had a client express their frustration that they could not seem to reach zero accidents and we're looking for something to help them reach zero. We have talked about the fallacy of zero in a previous podcast, but it seems amazing that in industrial construction safety today, management is often blind to the effects of fatigue. In our culture assessments, respondents workers frequently report fatigue due to long work hours as a major problem for not only safety reasons, but because of disruptions to family time and quality of life. DOT regulates fatigue, obviously, and their rules allow commercial truck operators to drive for 11 hours at one time, and the rules add a 30-minute break as a requirement for every eight hours of driving. Under the EM385 rules, these are the regulations required for those who work with military or DOD, equipment operators may not work more than 12 hours and 24 with a minimum of eight hours rest between shift. And eight hours of rest should not include commuting time. I've often heard workers complain that they work late and then miss come in early for an all-hands meeting. Many time, we've had companies that require a meeting to collect culture assessment surveys. Needless to say, that survey respondent is probably not going to give you good feedback at that point. Where we have required meetings, we need to take in consideration shift times and try to ac accommodate those workers within their normal schedules. Another way the system can impact fatigue is with call-outs for repairs or emergencies, etc. 
We need to be aware of the impact of those call-outs. In some companies, the call-out workers provided transportation to the work area due to their high risk of errors. Best practices and fatigue management start with training. We must educate everyone in the organization to understand the risk of fatigue and best practices for managing fatigue. When I say everyone in the organization, I mean everyone. From senior management to estimators, planners, mid-level managers need to know to make good decisions. Managing fatigue requires planning for adequate staffing. Companies need a formal fatigue management plan that addresses training, methods to assess fatigue, maximum hours, shift work, and rest periods. Addressing fatigue levels can be done in several ways ranging from providing workers with self-assessment questionnaires and encouraging their use, assessments to be done by supervisors, and random assessments to be done by safety staff. Fatigue should always be considered in event analysis processes. We must look at not only the work set schedule, but also what else was going on with the worker and their personal life that may have been a contributing factor to excessive fatigue. In summary, if you're not okay with intoxicated workers at your place of business, then addressing fatigue levels and shift work is essential.